As we come to 1 Peter 4, let me just remind you of the context here, because we've already looked at chapter 3, and in 1 Peter 3, Peter's focused on the believers suffering persecution from a hostile world, and, and even facing death, as Peter did, suffering unjustly for being godly is something that's also on Peter's mind here. Knowing how to face those kinds of trials is critical for our growth and joy. And in this particular section here, Peter is calling for believers to be willing to face persecution for righteousness' sake, for the cause of Christ. And by the way, even this includes martyrdom for Christ. And so his call here is a call for us to be unwavering, to endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So look what Peter says. He gets very practical here in 1 Peter 4, verse 1. 1 Peter 4, verse 1 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So from our text today, here's my proposition for you to consider. That God wants you to be prepared for suffering. This is what this text is teaching us. God's preparing you for suffering. And there's two points that we're going to look at today from the text. I've tried to match them up with M's. So this is M&M's. Sweet stuff, I hope, to your ears. So Paul, or Peter, I should say, is going to give us the mandate and the motivation to hopefully obey this command. So we got the mandate and motivation. First, let's look at the mandate. What is this mandate? Well, it's in verse 1. Peter just says, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, it's a command. It's in, in the imperative. And it's also interesting, as you, if you look at the Greek, is he's telling you this is something you have to do. You do this to yourself. You must make yourself ready. Equip yourself for this warfare. The Greek word translated arm yourselves there was used of a Greek soldier putting on his armor and, and taking up his weapons, equipping himself for battle. You'll see a picture of a Greek soldier there. That was a, uh, one that was heavily armed, foot soldier. That was typically how they would look. And that's exactly the word that Peter's using here. 
He's using the word for a heavy-armed foot soldier who has taken up his armor and his weapons for warfare. Peter could have used a different word. He could have used the word for a light-armored troop. But no, the Holy Spirit selected the word for a heavy-armed soldier, as you can see in this picture here. It's interesting, a heavy-armed Greek foot soldier was one who would carry his own armor. He didn't have his mommy out there carrying his stuff. He didn't have, uh, you know, a donkey or, uh, or something else. He had no car. He had to carry his own armor. And, and it wasn't light. It was cumbersome. His own armor and weapons weighed a lot. For example, uh, typically they would, the Greeks would carry a circular shield. It was approximately one meter in diameter. This thing could weigh up to 15 kilos. Just the shield alone. And in battle, he carried a shield on his, his left arm to protect half of his body as well as part of his fellow soldier to his left. And so the soldier's primary weapon was a spear, or what they might call a pike, approximately two and a half meters long. He would hold that in his right hand. Imagine carrying that around in a battle and, and fighting for a couple hours. And so typically... That wasn't it, though. They would also wear a a bronze breastplate, a helmet, and uh, even armor to cover their shins. He would carry a a short sword as well, approximately 60 centimeters long. So imagine all of that, and all that geared out would be a lot of weight. That's what a heavy-armed foot soldier for the Greeks was like. It wasn't easy. It was hard work. And they had to carry their own load. They had to do their own part. They had to be prepared for battle. It was hard work. You say, what's the point in all of that? Why is Peter telling us to arm ourselves like this? Well, the Christian needs the heaviest armor that you and I can get to withstand the attacks of the enemy of our soul. He has some rather serious weapons that he uses to attack us. And so all Christians must live like soldiers in a spiritual war. You say, why? Well, my friends, Christ hasn't sent you into the world as as if you're just on a holiday. You are not a vacationer on some self-guided tour through a playground. You're a soldier, and you're on a tour of duty. And it's serious business. You are on a battlefield. And there are people who are falling around you. And you have an enemy who wants to destroy you. See, we're not called to be sitting around relaxing, taking in the scenery, waiting for some guide to take us home. Rather, we're actually engaged in a fierce conflict. You are on foreign soil. This world is not your home. You're just passing through. Therefore, we need to arm ourselves, as Peter says here, with a spiritual armor, not, not physical armor, because it's a spiritual warfare. And you need this armor to withstand temptations that are going to come flying at you from your enemies. You have three enemies, you remember, right? You got Satan, your own flesh, and the world. And they all want to destroy you. They're not your friend. And Peter says, if you have been conformed to Christ's death and resurrection then the power of sin in your life has been broken. You have a new position, a new master. 
And so because the old person you used to be has died with Christ, you're now free to live with Christ. You don't have to listen to the old master anymore. You are free to live with Christ. So Peter says, arm yourselves. Now, how do we do that? So what Peter goes on to explain in verse 1, you arm yourselves with Christ's way of thinking. This is your greatest defense. It's interesting, the word in our text here, therefore. Notice it says in your text, since, therefore. And whenever you see a therefore in the scripture, it, you need to ask, what is it therefore? Well, it's pointing you back to the end of chapter 3 in particular, which was all about Christ. Christ's victory. So it's pointing to what Peter wrote about there. Well, what, what did he write about? Well, at the cross, we, we saw there that Christ endured his greatest suffering. He died under the divine judgment, as, the, as it says, the just for the unjust. <laughs> That's for you. Yet, he, he also accomplished his greatest triumph over sin, death, and Satan. And I love that, because we learned that the cross of Christ is the ultimate proof that suffering can actually lead to victory over the forces of evil. The, the thing that we as human beings often consider the, the, one of the worst conceivable things, which is suffering, we, we think that's, oh, that's the worst. No, it actually can lead to great victory. So what is Peter telling us to do here? He, he's essentially telling you, grow up. <laughs> grow up. Get the mind of Christ. Be prepared for battle. Serious business. You say, well, what is the mind of Christ? What, what is Christ's way of thinking? What, what is Peter actually talking about here? Well, Christ was willing, if you look at chapter 3, what is he? He's willing to die. Because Christ knew that death is going to produce the greatest victory. Hebrews put it this way, chapter 12. It was the joy that was set before him that caused him to endure the cross. He knew the victory before he even went. And so Peter had that opportunity to live this out when he himself faced martyrdom. Praise God, as far as we know, according to history, Peter was faithful to the end and even chose to die on a cross upside down because he knew he was not worthy to die like Christ. So where do you think Peter got that kind of teaching from? <laughs> from Jesus. From Jesus. In fact, he heard Jesus say these words in Luke 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Peter heard those words several times. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, some people think it's, you know, taking up your cross just means you're just merely putting on some extra spiritual dedication. Oh, no, that is, that is not, my friends, that is not what Jesus meant. Jesus' listeners knew exactly what he was talking about. He, he's talking about being executed on a cross. Jesus meant we have to confess him as Lord and, and deal with the consequences of that confession, no matter what, including physical death for Christ's sake. And so, my friends, look at church history. Thousands of martyrs throughout church history have been willing to die because they armed themselves with Christ's way of thinking. 
They were willing to die for Christ, just as Christ was willing to die. Be faithful to the Father, just as Jesus was faithful to the Father. No, no matter what, he knew that he had to go through this humiliation before the exaltation. There was a cross before the crown. That's the way it was for Jesus. And so the greater the unjust suffering, the greater the reward. And so Christian martyrs have realized this truth. They were willing to follow Christ in his sufferings, knowing that their death was going to lead them to a great victory and great reward. Christian martyrs have realized this, that the greatest triumph of all, in, it's, it's in, actually in death. Because believers have ceased from sin. Did you notice that? The end of verse 1. Death actually releases you from your greatest problem. It does. And it's forever gone after you're dead. No longer have to deal with it again. Interesting word there, ceased. Emphasizes a permanent condition. Permanent freedom from your greatest problem being sin. Well, praise God for Christ. He didn't have that problem. It was eternal freedom from sin for him. But for believers, they can face death with the same attitude that their Lord had, that when death comes, you're going to enter an eternal condition of holy perfection. You are free from sin's effects once and for all. And so the worst that it can actually happen to a believer is death. And, and by the way, that's the best that can happen because notice again, verse 1, it is the final end of sin in your life. So, therefore, instead of death actually being a fearful thing, martyrs throughout church history have rejoiced going to their death. They have been singing God's praises, reading Scripture, praying as they go to their death, embracing the stake, or whatever their form of death might be, knowing that it was the stake that released them from their sin and took them to God. Mr. Hamilton understood this when he wrote a poem. A guy by the name of E.H. Hamilton, after he heard about the, the death of one of his missionary colleagues by the name of Jack Vinson, this was in China, by the way, 1930s. Vinson was martyred in 1931, and by all reports, he showed no fear from his Chinese captors. In fact, this is what he said before his death. He said, he said to the Chinese soldiers, he said, kill me. If you wish, I will go straight to God. And here's what E.H. Hamilton wrote in a poem after he heard about his colleague's death. He wrote a poem called Afraid. Afraid of what? To feel the Spirit's glad release? To pass from pain to perfect peace? The strife and strain of life to cease? Afraid of what? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face, to hear His welcome, and to trace the glory gleam from wounds of grace. Afraid of that? Afraid of what? A flash, a crash, a pierced heart. Brief darkness, light. Oh, heaven's art. A wound of His, a counterpart. 
Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To enter into heaven's rest, and yet to serve the master blessed. From service good to service best? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? To do by death what life could not, baptize with blood a stony plot, till souls shall blossom from the spot. Afraid of that? That was his poem called Afraid. He understood the mind of Christ and that there's no reason to fear death, for a believer anyway. So Peter's telling us, he's commanding us, arm ourselves. How do we do that? Well, number three, arm yourself by becoming a person of resolve. Arm yourself by becoming a person of resolve. I want you to notice in the text here that to embrace our calling initially requires the attention of your mind. See, we begin by thinking clearly. See, your, your, your actions aren't going to follow unless your mind is engaged, right? You're only going to do what your mind's telling you to do. And for that, we need to develop this mental disposition of Jesus Christ. You need to study passages like 1 Peter 3. Know who Christ is. What did he do? How did he think? So my friend, there's your exhortation. Study Christ. So that you would believe who he is, what he said. That you would follow his life. Well, today it's quite difficult for many Christians to understand and embrace God's intentions in suffering. In fact, there's even a movement in our world today that says, if you're suffering, it's, well, it's because of you, basically. It's your fault, your lack of faith, or whatever it might be. And so we prefer a gospel in which, you know, God gives us healthy bodies and huge bank accounts, right? That's the gospel. Wrong. (laughs) You know, we tend to think sometimes that material blessing is the entitlement for believing in Jesus. It's the reward of the gospel. My friends, put it bluntly, too many people, they expect Jesus, comfort, and acceptance from the world. But is that what Jesus believed? The life of Christ actually challenges all of that kind of faulty thinking. Jesus didn't think that way. He didn't believe that. In fact, he resolved to live as a stranger in this world. He actually expected hardship. He expected it. And by the way, so should we. He tells us to expect it. Peter's telling us to be prepared for suffering. Well, how are you going to do that? Number four, arm yourself by living for the will of God. Not your own will, but for the will of God. Verse 2 says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So I need to ask you, what are you living for? Whose will are you living for? It's going to be someone's will. Is it your own? Or is it God's? And how are we to start living for God's will anyway? Well, Peter has been helping us along the way. So let me remind you of some of the ground we've already covered. If you look back in Peter's letter here, he's he's told us what the will of God looks like. For example, in 
in chapter 1, verse 14, here's what he said. As obedient children, it's on the screen, by the way. Look at this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You don't have to guess what God's will is for your life. It's right there, written down in the scriptures for you. Be holy in all your conduct. In other words, give yourself to pursuing holiness. Why? Because God's holy. You're supposed to be his child. You're supposed to represent him. God wants us to make a commitment here to sanctification. Not just sanctification, the big word, meaning you're set apart from your sin unto God. You're to put on this new self. The old self is to be put off when you come to Christ. And this is how we can prepare for our calling here to arm ourselves. I want you to look at another one that teaches us here what the will of God is. Chapter 2, verse 11, Peter said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So my friends, we do the will of God. You're able to do the will of God when you keep your conduct honorable by doing good deeds. That covers a lot of ground, a very general way of fulfilling God's will, but this is going to require us to be countercultural. This is, in other words, you're going to be like the salmon who's trying to swim upstream. You know, all the water's rushing past. Everything's trying to take you back out to sea with it, right? That's what the world's doing. It's, the world's rushing past you, trying to take you with it, conform you into its mold, and you've got you to gotta go against the flow. You're going to be swimming against the current of today's moral tide. And frankly, Jesus says, expect it. Expect it. In fact, believe this is a good thing. Well, my friends, that's Peter's mandate to arm ourselves. Now let's look at the second main point that Peter brings out here in verses 3 through 6. Peter knows that arming ourselves is hard business, hard work. So we need some motivation. And that's the second point. Peter motivates us to arm ourselves, to be prepared to suffer in a hostile world. And he motivates us with three points. He's going to look at the past, the present, and the future. He's going to give you the past, present, and future. Three points in the text here. First of all, let's look at the past. What's the motivation he gives? He, he talks about our sinful past in verse 3. A sinful past. 1 Peter 4, verse 3 says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. So Peter's reminding believers to leave their sin behind. Why? Because it belongs to a former life. It belongs to the old self, not the new self. 
And since they've been delivered from that evil life, their souls are purified. The time's already passed for serving sin. You have a new master. By the way, this phrase here refers to chronological time. And the point is this, my friends, that believer's sinful past is a closed book. The story of sin is over. When you have been regenerated, you now put the words at the end of the story, the end, close the book. Peter described their sinful past with six words. By the way, let me just state, some of you were born, or sorry, saved, new birth, young age, like I was. And so you might look at these six words that Peter is describing here of the old sinful life and say, well, that's not me. Well, that would be you if it wasn't for the grace of God. Thank God you were saved at an early age. And you say, well, I, I, I haven't experienced all those things. Thank God for that. Praise Him for that. And, and you, can learn, you can learn from the older generation who, who've been through this kind of old sinful life. But look at Peter describes here for us. The first word he uses is sensuality. Again, he's describing this, this sinful past. This is supposed to motivate you to arm yourself. And he uses sensuality as, as one example. What is that? Well, that's just engaging in unbridled, unrestrained immorality of all sorts and kinds. Okay, We won't get into the nitty-gritty ugliness of what that is. It's, we're surrounded by it. It's all around us. Not just in Peter's day, we have it in our day. In all forms of ugliness. But Peter goes on, number two, he mentions passions here. These are just sinful desires that drive people into all these kind of indulgences. Drunkenness being one of them, the third one, which is habitual Habitual intoxication. By the way, it also includes the use of illegal drugs. Illegal drugs intoxicate people's minds as well. This is the sort of stuff that people in Peter's day had gone through. They understood this old sinful life. And included in that were orgies. Orgies orgies there refers to participating in wild parties which would include drunkenness, includes the sensuality, includes the next one, the, the drinking parties. Drinking parties were, is where people just get together for the purpose of drinking themselves silly, mindless, where they're, they're, they're drunk and out of control. And then Peter last mentions this lawless idolatry. This was an immoral worship of false gods that accompanied these orgies and these drinking parties. Their idolatry in in their their temples was disgusting. It was all forms of lawlessness, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties. That was their life. It was habitual. You say, what is the point of all of this? Well, Peter's bringing all this ugliness up of their past life 
to, to show that the, the memory of the pain and the misery that those deeds caused them was to help motivate them to diligently avoid that kind of behavior. It was to help arm themselves to, to, to be prepared for the battle. You say, well, our sinful past needs to be a motivation to put off that old life, to put on the new life. Now, you may not have experienced all those things. If you haven't, praise God for that. But you can look at many examples, people you know, people you've heard of or read about, learn from them. You don't need to experience those things to know the foolishness and the stupidity of it. It'll never bring satisfaction. But Peter goes on to motivate us, not just by looking at our past sinfulness, but at our present opposition. Verse 4 points out the present opposition that happens to a Christian who, who gives up the old sinful past. Because look at verse 4. Peter says, with respect to this, giving up that old sinful life, these unbelievers are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Yeah. And so when Christians give up that old life, Notice what the text says. Unbelievers are actually surprised. The idea is they're astonished at your transformation. <laughs> In fact, you might even say they're shocked. And some might even take offense. You say, why? Well, sin was such a normal way of lifestyle for the unbelievers that they're amazed that Christians' lives are, are changed so radically, so totally. They don't get it. And some people even resented the new believers of Peter's day because they weren't going to the parties. They weren't going into the temple and worshiping the false gods. You know, you know you've probably heard unbelievers tell you things, right? You know, who do you think you are? Who died and made you God? holier than thou you know they, they tease you right make silly statements and they do what peter's talking about they, they malign you malign literally by the way means to blaspheme to slander to defame someone to speak evil of them and this is what happens it's sad but it happens doesn't it Sometimes a friend of yours, maybe even a very close friend, maybe even your best friend, can become your enemy when you give up the old sinful past to follow Christ. Now, often this happens because Christians just aren't willing to participate in the idolatry. They don't want to worship false gods. They know who the true God is. And so let my friends, here, here's the point. This is supposed to motivate you. Let the opposition motivate you to keep doing right, to stay on the right path. Their response to you is actually showing that you are thinking like Christ. Do you get it? Their response is showing you're doing the right thing. You're thinking like Christ. Let that motivate you, that you're on the right path. But then Peter ends with a third motivation, so he's 
He's looked at the past. He's looked at the present. And now he's going to point us to the future. A future judgment. And he's going to divide verses 5 and 6 up into a future judgment for the unbelievers and then for the believers. First, look with me at the future judgment for the unbelievers. We see in verse 5, God's going to judge unbelievers. In other words, they will not get away with their attack on the Christians. And so Peter assured his readers here that those who slander and persecute believers are going to give an account for their actions. The all-knowing God of the universe sees all, knows all, and has a book. He knows what they've thought, he knows what they've done, and they're going to give an account of it. Such vicious attackers are actually, Peter says here, building a debt to the God whom they're going to spend eternity paying it back. Notice the text says, he who is ready to judge. Who is that? That's God. God's going to hold them accountable. And please note, who, who will be judged here? The text says, everyone. <laughs> the living and the dead. That's everyone. When is this going to happen? Well, the text doesn't tell you that part. But we, we know from Scripture, though, that this judgment is going to take place between the end of our present universe and the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. You can read about the great white throne judgment here in Revelation chapter 20, taking place between our present earth and the new earth. And here's what the judgment says for the unbeliever. Revelation 20, verse 11. John saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and the sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. My friends, that is the great white throne judgment. May I remind you, it is only for unbelievers. The unbelievers will stand at this judgment. So we see God's going to judge the unbelievers. That's bad news. But if you are a believer today, that judgment is not for you. And by a believer, I mean a believer in Christ. If your faith is totally immersed in Christ alone, then you are a believer. And there is good news for you because we see in verse 6 that God will reward believers. Believers will receive no condemnation for their sin. And so, Peter reminds his readers here that the gospel, this good news, was preached even to dead believers. Look what he says in verse 6. 
For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So though some of the dead believers here, notice it says they were judged in the flesh, just means they were physically put to death, they were alive in the Spirit, just as we talked about in chapter 3 with Christ. Christ was in the tomb, bodies in the tomb, but His Spirit was alive. And so it was with Christ, it is with us. Christ had been put to death in the flesh as a result of human judgment, Yet, we see he's also made alive in the Spirit, resurrected to to new life. And that's the way it is with us. Believers who suffer the ultimate expressions of rejection and suffering and persecution and judgment in this life are one day going to be resurrected to eternal life. You say, what's the point? Just give me the bottom line, please, right? Well, here here it is, my friends. Believers, Peter is saying, are to arm themselves with the genuine hope of eternal life. Believers should be willing and unafraid to suffer. Why? Because a, a true believer knows that all death can do is triumphantly bring our eternal spirits into an everlasting life in heaven. It's not the end. The beginning. My, pr- my friend, are you prepared to suffer? Peter's exhorting you, be prepared to suffer. In fact, here is, I believe, the theme of our text today. I put it on the screen here for you, my friends. That Christians must arm themselves to fight well against Satan, the world, and sin during their tour of duty in this hostile world. You will suffer. I hope you suffer well for the cause of Christ. And one of the things that's, that's helped me, and I've benefited greatly from reading accounts of other Christians who have suffered throughout church history. I want to tell you about a, the second century martyrdom of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. Uh, he was also the pastor in the, of the church in Smyrna. And there's quite a long thing you can read about him in Fox's Book of Martyrs. I won't do the whole thing for you. But here's basically, I'm I'm summarizing part of the Fox's Book of Martyrs for you. When Polycarp was brought before the Roman proconsul, he was asked if he was Polycarp, because they wanted to kill the right guy. And so when he confessed that he was, the proconsul tried to persuade him to recant. He said, uh, have respect for your age. I remember Polycarp was 86 years old. And so he said, swear by the genius of Caesar. Repent! Say, away with the atheist, (laughs) the Christian. So Polycarp solemnly looked at the whole crowd, surrounded in the stadium by a crowd. Polycarp said, away with the atheist. He didn't mean the Christians. But when the magistrate persisted and said, Swear the oath, and I will release you. Revile Christ. Polycarp replied, For 86 years I have been Christ's servant, and he has done me no wrong. 
How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? But as he continued to insist, he said, If you vainly suppose that I will swear by Caesar as you request, and pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully, proconsul. I am a Christian. So the proconsul said, I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them unless you change your mind. Polycarp said, call for them. For the repentance from better to worse is a change impossible for us. But it is a noble thing to change from that which is evil to righteousness. And then he said to him again, here's what the proconsul said, I will have you consumed by fire since you despise the wild beast. Unless you change your mind, Polycarp said, you threaten with a fire that burns only briefly and after just a little while is extinguished. But you are ignorant of the fire of coming judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. Why do you delay? Come, do what you wish. You can see here is a, someone's drawing of Polycarp's death. Polycarp was brought to the stake. And apparently it was a custom to nail people using nails, nail them to the wooden stake so they couldn't get away and would suffer the horrible punishment. But Polycarp didn't want to be nailed to the stake with nails, so he said, leave me as I am. For he who gives me strength to sustain the fire will also enable me without your securing me with nails, to remain without flinching in the pile. So they bound him without nails. Before Polycarp died, he said, O Father, I bless you that you have counted me worthy to receive my portion among the number of martyrs. And he embraced his death, knowing his death would release him from sin and he would be with Jesus forever. So my friends, that is how Polycarp went to be with his Lord Jesus Christ. So we praise God. He did not recant. He did not revile Christ. He praised Christ. And so I trust that you and I will be prepared to meet Jesus as Polycarp did. May the great cloud of witnesses that surround us Encourage us, and may God's grace enable us to be prepared for suffering. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for Peter and your word here, for your spirit who has given us these precious words, for your spirit who has illuminated our minds to understand what we've read. So may your spirit enable us to, to obey. These are hard words. We, we've seen that we're to arm ourselves with Christ's way of thinking. We cannot do that in our own strength. Would you do that for us, which we cannot do for ourselves? Would you motivate us with the same motivations that Peter has given to us here? May we not forget the past and the present and the future. And may they cause us to live for you and, if necessary, die for you.
May we be willing to do that if that is your will for us. So we pray that you would do your work in us for your honor and your glory and and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.